pronounce his name correctly, Vanden Bosch. I think I was quiet there. Anyway, so um, yeah, Doctor, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks very much for joining me. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for uh, for having me. Yeah, no problem. Always a delight to have someone on who uh, who's, well, saying things that aren't being discussed by most people. That's like, I think that's my favorite reason to have someone on the show. So yeah, when I when I first came across some of the work you'd been doing um, through last year and this year, I was really intrigued. Um, so we'll we'll get to that. But uh, the thing that I'd like to to begin with, um, as we mentioned, was uh, just a little bit on on your background, um, where you studied, and and how you kind of got into this line of work in the first place. Mm. Well, uh, yeah, I was uh, trained as a veterinary doctor and uh, I worked in veterinary practice for some time but then early on in my career I switched to uh, virology, human and veterinary virology, molecular biology, uh, immunology. Uh, I uh, worked for yeah, several years, about uh, 10 years in, uh, in academia where I uh, specialized in, in virology, also environmental virology to then move on to, uh, to industry, to the vaccine industry, where uh, I worked in the um, uh, late, in, well, I worked with several different uh, vaccine companies like uh, GSK, Novartis, uh, also Solvay Biologicals. And um, I worked as well in the late development, so that was close to the product, uh, very much uh, that has very much to do with uh, regulatory affairs, uh, quality control, etc. And then I switched to the uh, R&D department, so uh, research and development uh, of uh, vaccines, new vaccine design, etc. And um, well, after uh, my career, so to say, in, in uh, industry with these three uh, companies. I uh, moved on to the uh, to work with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in uh, Seattle, and uh, there I was a senior program uh, officer, was coordinating uh, a lot of work at an international level, uh, all uh, of course concentrated on uh, vaccines, new vaccine design, new proposals for fighting uh, important infectious diseases like malaria, HIV, TB, etc. And uh, I also worked for uh, some time with uh, Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and uh, Immunization in uh, Geneva. I set up uh, my uh, own uh, company and uh, I'm currently doing a lot of, uh, well, I used to do a lot of consultancy work for biotech and um, vaccine companies. But of course, ever since the uh, pandemic uh, broke out and since, uh, you know, uh, uh, we got these mass vaccination campaigns, I started to concentrate on that issue because I really thought it was an issue and it was not uh, really the best thing uh, to do. So ever since, uh, let's say, uh, since the end of uh, uh, 2020, I've been uh, full time uh, working on uh, analyzing uh, the uh, pandemic and uh, the impact of mass vaccination and human uh, intervention on the, on the pandemic and uh, sharing, of course, a lot of information through our website, articles, uh, interviews, uh, Q&As, uh, etc. So, I mean, then from my, from my understanding, then you would not consider yourself to be someone who's like, skeptical of vaccines like generally you, you wouldn't put yourself in that camp mm. no of course not and uh, i mean this this issue is uh, complicated but uh, when you would ask somebody well uh, are you against uh, pills they would say no why would i be against pills but i just don't take pills when uh, there is no need to and i would say the same well uh, use vaccines but if there is a contraindication, for example, you cannot use the kind of vaccines that we are developing for prophylactic, for preventive use, you cannot not use these vaccines in the midst of a pandemic. That is a contraindication. So that doesn't mean that somebody's against vaccines. That just means that you should not be using vaccines during a pandemic because that will prevent the population from generating herd immunity. So um, that is, that is uh, it's as simple as that. So this has nothing to do with uh, genuine or a general uh, aversion. 
uh, against vaccines. Uh, on the contrary. <clears throat> so this is uh, this is like something I've heard quite a lot um, for the past two years. Uh, well, maybe not past two years, but the past year at least since the the vaccine rollout began, really January twenty twenty one, was people being skeptical that it was a good idea to roll out vaccines on a large scale rapidly during a pandemic so for myself uh to make sure i've understood correctly and for the people listening would you like to explain why that is a bad like why is that a bad idea surely like you know logic and what we've been being told (laughs) it would suggest that like that's the way out that's the best thing to do like that's how we end the pandemic and how we get back to normal like why is that not the case Mm. well the uh The easy explanation, but I will, of course, a little bit elaborate on this, but the easy explanation would be uh, to draw a parallel with uh, somebody going, for example, uh, to fight a war. Before you go to the battlefield, everybody would understand that it would be a good idea to load your arm, to load your gun before you go to the battlefield. Because if you are already in the battlefield and you then still need to load your gun, there is a high likelihood that uh, you, you know, you will be shooted before you even have time to load your gun. So the more concrete parallel uh, is when you go to, uh, when you plan on traveling to a country where there is an infectious disease against which you could uh, potentially protect yourself by vaccination, you would make sure that uh, the your full vaccination is completed before. You, you start traveling and before you get exposed to that pathogen in that foreign country, for example. And that is exactly uh, <clears throat> what is not okay with vaccinating during a pandemic, because if you have a pandemic, you have to uh, imagine that uh, the enemy is uh, everywhere and could uh, hit you anytime. So when you start vaccinating people during a pandemic, that means that people are going to mount an immune response and that takes time. It takes time before you have a full-fledged immune response that is fully capable of dealing with the pathogen. When that process is ongoing or as long as that process is ongoing, your immune response is what we call immature. It's not functional. But because you do this during a pandemic, you can already be, be exposed to the virus. And when you are exposed to the virus while not having a full-fledged and mature immune response, the virus will be able to escape from that immune response because it will still be able to some extent to to replicate and uh, to infect and to transmit because the immune response is doing something, but as it is not full-fledged, as it's not fully functional, it will not be able to eliminate a virus. So the virus can still replicate. So when the virus replicates, it always generates mutants, variants. And according to the law of Darwin, of course, those variants that can best resist to the immune pressure that is generated by the vaccine, those variants will of course have a competitive advantage. The other variants, you know, they will be hampered, they will be hindered in the replication, but those variants that can overcome this pressure, the antibodies that are not fully functional, those variants that can overcome this will have a competitive advantage and uh, they will, of course, then become dominant in the population, especially when you do mass vaccination. If you only, uh, like, vaccinate you know, a part of the population like we do every year with the influenza vaccine, that doesn't matter because that means that you may have an individual who is mounting antibodies that cannot neutralize the virus and where a mutant that is more infectious can be selected. But if this is transmitted to another person who doesn't have these antibodies, for example, then this variant that has been selected in the first person has no longer a competitive advantage in the second person. So, but if this is now the case in the vast majority of the population, vast majority of the population means you do mass vaccination, you generate in, you know, a large part of the population, you generate immune responses that are immature before they encounter the virus, then of course, the virus will on regular occasions encounter an immune response 
that is not fully functional, and therefore the variant that has been selected can thrive, can propagate, and can finally become dominant in the population. And that is how mass vaccination through what we call natural selection ultimately leads to the propagation, the dominant propagation of variants that are more infectious. So more infectious means they can easily overcome the pressure that is exerted by the antibodies that uh, the population has mounted as a result, of course, of the mass vaccination. Okay, so I have a couple of questions about that and a few things I want to clarify just to make sure I've understood here. Um, so basically, you're saying that the case against mass vaccinations during a pandemic is essentially that we will be forcing the virus to mutate in a way that evades the vaccine. That's not true. No, that's not okay. true. Okay, so what have so, I misunderstood? No, no, no. That is, always, that is always the misinterpretation. Okay. Vax, uh, the viruses will always mutate. And the mutations uh, and the more infectious variants already existed before the mass vaccination. Okay. So that is, that is very clear. So what does the mass vaccination do? Well, the mass vaccination will make sure that those variants that are more infectious and that existed already before the mass vaccination, that they now, due to the mass vaccination, gain a competitive advantage, that they are naturally selected because they can overcome the pressure, the immune pressure exerted by the population that has been mass vaccinated. So the variants that existed, you know, and were from time to time sporadically isolated, when you do mass vaccination, all of a sudden they gain a competitive advantage over the variant that was dominant because these more infectious variants can better resist the immune pressure that is exerted as a consequence of the mass vaccination. And therefore, they can thrive better and they become dominant in the population. So the result of the mass vaccination is not that you drive mutations. Mutations happen all the time. But it is that you select more infectious variants and that you promote the dominant expansion of these more infectious variants. Okay, right. That 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 actually makes a lot more sense than than what I've heard from from other people in the past. So so yeah, thanks for that that, that great explanation. So yeah, then no the next thing that I wanted to clarify from what you said was that um, you, you mentioned, for example, when we, we, we vaccinate like a certain number of people every year against the flu, um, whether that's like elderly folks or, or, or people who are like immune compromised, then that when we're vaccinating like a small portion of people against something like that, that whilst in those people, it may select for the more infectious variant and give those one the more infectious variant like a competitive advantage over the other strains because it's not a, like a large portion of the population those aren't becoming the dominant strains of of influenza or whatever we may be talking mm. about but then in a case where for example with covid where you've like vaccinated like a massive amount of people in a very short period of time that that is that is like providing that pressure for the more yeah the more infectious strains to become the dominant ones have i understood that correctly well there is two fundamental differences with the annual flu vaccination the first is remember we never ever vaccinate during during the flu season we vaccinate people before the flu season starts right so vaccinating them in the midst of an outbreak, in the midst of an epidemic, of an annual epidemic, that would be comparable to vaccinating people during a pandemic. We don't do this. We always make sure that we vaccinate people before the flu season starts, right? Yeah. So we are not vaccinating them during the flu season. And the second point is what you mentioned correctly, is that we will always vaccinate only the vulnerable people, most of the times the elderly people. So we don't do mass vaccination and therefore there is no 
massive immune pressure that develops in the population. And therefore, the pressure that develops, since it is not exerted by all of the population, is way too weak to drive this dominant propagation of more infectious variants. So there is two important, very important reasons. On the other hand, if we would now all of a sudden have a flu pandemic and we would do the very same as we did now with the COVID, uh, with the COVID pandemic, namely that we would start to vaccinate in the midst of this flu pandemic, the population across all age groups, we would see exactly the same phenomenon. What we call immune escape, more infectious variants that start to dominate and that ultimately become resistant to the vaccines as we are now seeing with Omicron. Mm. Yeah. So right, I want to get to Omicron in um in in a minute. Um but before we we get to that, I was I was curious as to get like a little bit of historical precedent um and basically try and understand how we would have reacted to this in the past like or what we would have considered to be the correct course of action like with with other pandemics that like threatened to to appear but never really did things like uh bird flu swine flu um ebola uh given given your work in that maybe even zika like had they become like this as infectious and as widespread as as say covid19 has mm. would we do you think we would have followed this same path and was there a plan or or any sort of thing laid out that you're aware of of how we might have dealt with those in 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 that time well i would say the um the way we have uh, been dealing with um, this type of pandemics in the past is that basically um we didn't do anything so let me say, first of all, we cannot compare all kinds of pandemics. You, you cannot compare HIV pandemic, uh, an Ebola epidemic, uh, Zika epidemic uh, with, with Corona, etc. There are some uh, viral diseases that co cause pandemics that you can compare. You heard me just talking about influenza, for example. Mm -hmm. You heard me talking about coronavirus. Uh, SARS-CoV-2 is one type of coronavirus, but we have other coronaviruses and we have had other coronavirus pandemics. So in the past, for example, the best example is the flu uh, pandemic of 1918, so World War One where, uh, of course, we had a number of deaths, etc. The pandemic uh, all, uh, lasted for just like uh, about 10 months, one year. Eh? And, and then it was over, it was finished. Of course, uh, we, we now live in uh, a kind of, um, you know, period where uh, people uh, cannot support, obviously, that uh, people die. But um, what happened is that when the corona epidemic started, you have to imagine nobody, no immune system had seen this virus before. So the population was what we call immunologically naive, eh? didn't know, had never encountered this virus. Nevertheless, nevertheless, over 95% of the population was in fact completely protected against certainly severe disease, even against moderate disease. So the vast majority of people who were in good health, you know, were either asymptomatic, they didn't develop symptoms at all, or they developed mild symptoms or moderate, they were maybe one or two days in bed, etc. It was only the very vulnerable people, like uh, people with an um, an aging immune system, uh, for example, the elderly, uh, 80, 85 years and older, and people with underlying diseases, people who were immune suppressed that uh, got more severe disease. So one thing is we have also to realize that in our society, for example, we tend to concentrate vulnerable people all in the same place. Uh, for example, we have the elderly homes. Now, you hear me saying, first of all, these people are already vulnerable because of a weakened uh, immune system. And secondarily, uh, that is very well known, uh, not just in, in uh, human epidemiology, but also in veterinary epidemiology. If you have overcrowding, overcrowding too many people, too many animals in, in, in a very small uh, space, 
Then, of course, if one of the animals get infected, you immediately have a high infection rate because the virus can be easily transmitted to the next one. They, they are all piled one uh, upon the other, more or less. So that means that if you don't do anything in our modern society, yes, of course, you are first of all going to have considerable losses of, of human lives in uh, places where there is kind of, you know, we have these vulnerable people are all uh, gathered together in the same place. So in elderly homes, for example, but uh, there is uh, a possibility, of course, to prevent it, thanks to public health measures, preventive public health measures, you can diminish the infectious spread in those elderly homes. You can also, as soon as people show symptoms, you can treat them. I mean, there has been a lot of obstruction of treatment, early treatment, as we know, because obviously uh, public health authorities, uh, politicians, and certainly the vaccine companies wanted to promote their vaccines. So they have been, uh, in fact, uh, preventing to a large extent uh, doctors, medical doctors, from applying uh, early treatment. But so in other words, the human healthy people, they are protected automatically. You don't need to do anything. They can get a disease. They can be a couple of days in bed, but they will recover and they will have a very robust natural immunity. So the elderly and people with weak uh, immune systems, you can pro protect them through a number of measures, uh, preventive, uh, you know, measures uh, like, uh, for example, yeah, masking and 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 social distancing, etc. But you can also apply early treatment when they get a disease or when they get the infection. So now it's very very important. The question: Do you need to do this on a longer term? No because the population that has the innate protective immunity or that even gets the disease and then recovers from the disease and developed uh, is developing protective antibodies that will lead to herd immunity and herd immunity is the key word because herd immunity is nothing else than population building up a level of immunity that dramatically diminishes the transmission of the virus so that even vulnerable people that have a weak immune system or people that have not encountered the virus, have not been immunized, therefore, have nothing to fear from this virus because the likelihood that they are going to be infected is so low because thanks to the herd immunity, you have dramatically lowered uh, the likelihood of transmission. So once you have this herd immunity, even the vulnerable people are, so to say, indirectly protected thanks to the low, the very low transmission rate. And so that is what we should have done. Uh, we should have, of course, applied infection prevention measures to vulnerable people, especially in the elderly homes. And we would, we should have given them immediately access to early treatment, and we should have uh, done this for a certain time till we had developed a herd immunity, but we should have left alone, for God's sake, all the youngsters and all the healthy people, because they are the reservoir for developing herd immunity. And when you start vaccinating them, you heard me saying mass vaccination leads to more infectious variants that dominate. If more infectious variants dominate, you get a higher infection rate you get a higher transmission rate. That is exactly the opposite from herd, of herd immunity. That is exactly the opposite of what herd immunity is supposed to do, namely to lower the infection rate and to lower the transmission. So this brings us actually quite nicely to, to Omicron. And, and this this concept of, of herd immunity is one that... You know, I, I don't know how much you pay attention to like what people have said through the whole pandemic about this, but there's a sizable faction um, in the UK who, who were repeating the phrase herd immunity is murder. And I, I, I was I, I was just baffled at, at this concept. And, and why do you think it is before we get to, to Omicron and, and sort of what's happened um yeah, with the with the vaccination program, like, why do you think it is that people were so resistant to to even the idea that this concept existed? I mean, there was people trying to deny that it was even like it, it was even a real idea 
I saw. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, is this not fairly mm. well-known, like, scientific theory? Like, I mean, you can you can say that you could claim that, that, that COVID was was so so on such an unknown and so deadly to like a certain portion of the population that it was callous and to to suggest that that's the the way that we had to the, the way that would have been ideal to go down but i mean you can't deny it existed like what why do you think there was so much resistance to to even that idea of of what you're suggesting because if you had said this in may of 2020 people would have called you many names shall we say <laughs> we'll not go into mm -hmm. it like why why was that the case well i i think it's it's simply uh, uh two things uh, fear fear and uh, the second is that we uh, our generation uh, has not experienced uh, really uh, pandemics we are not used to this and we live in a society and we live in a time where we we think that is the arrogance of humankind and the you know uh, also uh, i would say um yeah we are as scientists and and politicians over ambitious we think we can save every life and we can just have treatments and vaccines uh, that uh, prevent uh, you know people whatever their age whatever their health status uh, from dying and so the third thing is that there was an enormous push uh, for getting everyone so to say vaccinated and since the who declared this uh, you know a health emergency of international concern and uh, opened the door to industry you know to supply vaccines as many as they could there was an enormous push and so uh, they continued they started reporting all these figures on hospitalizations uh, and deaths. Whereas you have to know that during this pandemic initially, 99% of the population didn't get to the hospital, but did also get exposed to the virus. So uh, they were protected. And uh, that, is, that is something, you know, that was not reported upon. Yeah. What was reported were all the cases of the hospitalization and that, etc. Very often, very often, most people, as I was saying, with underlying diseases, with comorbidities, uh, you know, immune suppressed, uh, elderly people, etc. And some people like Peter McCullough and others, immediately concentrated on how could we treat these people how could we prevent them from you know the disease further evolving up to uh, a situation where they need to be hospitalized where there is no choice how could we do outpatient treatment and uh, just cure this disease uh, within one week for example so if this is not implemented of course you start losing a number of people namely those who have a weakened immune system elderly etc etc we could have prevented an awful number of these deaths but we could not have prevented all of these deaths and so then people are saying okay we need to vaccinate because then we can really prevent this as a matter of fact we have already seen that the vaccines are tremendously you know losing efficacy and that we are now having one pandemic wave after the other. During a natural pandemic, normally this thing is finished within, I would say, eight to 12 months on average. Yeah. And you have three waves and then it's finished. Now we continue to have these waves. And even if the number of deaths are still maybe relatively low, if you add all these deaths over months and months, uh, we are now almost like over two years in this pandemic, two and a half years, you end up with a figure that is going to be much, much, much higher than uh, the maximal number of deaths that we would have had uh, during the natural pandemic. And as I was saying, if we would have taken these pre infection prevention measures towards people that needed it, right, the vulnerable people, and would have given them access to the um, uh, early treatment while enabling the younger and the healthy people to generate herd immunity, the death toll would have been much much lower than it is right now than it's already right now and it's not finished right yeah yeah that's that's the concerning part i think for people is that that 
this is and this is also what drew me to your work um was your your sort of yeah the the suggestion that this is far from over and obviously the yeah there's there's one side of of this argument who i don't believe want it to be over for their own sort of yeah i'm not going to <laughs> i think they get a bit of a trip no, no, a trip off the off the off the you know the par and the the virtue signaling the being sanctimonious about how wonderful they are but you get that with everything but but what you're saying and from what i was able to 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 grasp from from the paper that you sent me um from the your predictive analysis of the evolution of covid-19 mm. was that omicron has been has become the dominant variant due to this effect that we were talking about um, earlier. This, uh, like, escape um, yeah. escape vector for, for whereby, yeah, the the most um, infectious versions of COVID become the ones that are the the most propagated because of um, the high levels of vaccination. So, what? What do you think is then coming next? And and is this effect the reason that we've seen? the highest levels of infection in the countries that seemingly have the highest rates of vaccination. Like it's, it seems mm. to be, and now this is just 100% anecdotal YouTube. Don't take me down for this, but it seems that the, a lot of the countries who have really high rates of vaccination then end up with like huge spikes in cases. I mean, you could look at lots of different places. Mm. Um, the ones that spring to mind um, are South Korea, um, We've got China, obviously, although I don't think their vaccination rates are particularly high. Um, parts of Israel as well, I think, is probably the the best example because the amount of data that we, we have because of the yeah how how uh, yeah how much information their mm -hmm. medical their medical service basically collects. So is that is this effect that you're describing what has been driving that phenomenon? And well, what do you yeah, think is next? Well, yeah. Well, to explain it in as simple words as possible, you can look at the curves in highly vaccinated countries and in other countries in, you know, in different ways. But if you look at the curves in the vaccinated countries, what you see and what everybody will agree upon is that you see a repetition of, of, of different peaks. I mean, it's not like we had two or three peaks in many of these countries. We, we now had already four, five, six peaks, bigger peaks, smaller peaks. The interval between the peaks is also becoming uh, smaller and smaller, shorter and shorter. Uh, when the wave declines, it is never going back to the baseline, right? But it levels off above the baseline, then you have a kind of small plateau and then puff, it, it goes again, uh, it, it, it increases again. So what that means is that we are still having a lot of infection. So not herd immunity diminishing, uh, not herd immunity developing, because if you would have herd immunity developing, you would see that waves decline, that they join the baseline, go basically to zero, etc. But we see different waves. So every single wave is again a burst of infection. You see that even if when it levels off, it's above the baseline. So even if it calms down to say you still have a relatively high infection rate in the population. So the virus is, in other words, continuing to be transmitted and to be infectious, whereas you have to realize that most of the infections right now are mild or moderate. So that means that many of these infections are, are simply not reported. So the case rate is now incredibly underreported because many people don't even go to the doctor anymore or, you know, they cure it out at home or they, they have only mild infection, etc. So that, that is the first thing. So that is important to realize uh, we don't have a positive impact with these vaccines on uh, the vaccine infection rate and, of course, not on the transmission rate. The second thing is, and this is simply the lesson learned, what is the lesson that we learned from the first part of the pandemic all the way up till the uh, emergence of Omicron? Well, what we learned is that we were using vaccines to try to diminish the infection and to generate herd immunity. Remember, that was the objective, right? Yeah. To diminish the infection and to diminish the transmission. And what we have achieved 
is that we have now dominant propagation of a viral strain, Omicron, of a family, in fact, of variants and subvariants that has overcome the pressure that we have been putting on infectiousness. We wanted to diminish the infectiousness. What we got was a, was a variant, is a variant that has overcome, that has become resistant to denutralizing antibodies in the vaccine. So this thing has not worked. The virus has overcome the pressure that we were putting on the virus. And that pressure was directed against the infectiousness. Why? Because the antibodies are directed against the spike protein and the spike protein is responsible for infectiousness. So that is the lesson learned. This thing didn't help in terms of controlling viral infectivity and viral transmission. So what is happening right now? We are seeing right now that, uh, in fact, the uh, infections, so the virus is still very infectious, in, in, especially in the vaccinees. So the vaccinees are very susceptible to infection, but they don't develop severe disease. So in other words, there is now pressure of the vaccine on the virulence of the virus. So the virulence of the virus is the capability of the virus to be pathogenic, to do harm, so to say. So we are putting pressure now on the virulence of the virus. So the virus has become less virulent, less pathogenic. So what will happen, we didn't learn the first lesson, is that the virus, as long as it replicates, and that is why I started out saying that it is still replicating, we have high transmission rates, high infection rates, that we will leave the door open to the virus to also overcome the pressure that we are now putting on the virulence of the virus. So in other words, what this will lead to is that we will finally end up with variants that are not only highly infectious, right? they have overcome the pressure on the infectiousness, they will now also on top overcome the pressure on the virulence. And we will end up with, with, with viral variants that are not only highly infectious, but also highly virulent and are, and are resistant to the vaccines. So that is, that is not uh, a very positive uh, perspective uh, to, be, to be open. No, I mean, that's, that sounds um, slightly terrifying if I'm honest. Um, now, if this was to be the case, and this is what we ended up seeing, is there any indication so far that that has started to happen? Like, is there anything that you're looking at that's, because um, obviously this is like, you, this is your predictive analysis. Um, mm. So is there anything that's happening um, in the real world since you published this analysis and for, since you've been working on this theory that that this is the case that is that this is coming to pass like is there suggestions um in in what's going on at the minute that 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 may be the case that you're looking at well there, there is of course several different uh, very clear uh, indications uh the one thing is that um a number of people have published that when the virus becomes resistant to the neutralizing antibodies so that is the case with omicron that then you have the non-neutralizing antibodies that start to dominate. So if you like the spike protein, when you vaccinate with the spike protein, that induces neutralizing antibodies and non-neutralizing antibodies. As long as the neutralizing antibodies strongly bind to the spike protein and neutralize the spike protein, they will dominate the non-neutralizing antibodies. So in other words, the non-neutralizing antibodies cannot bind or can barely bind. But as soon as the neutralizing capacity of the antibodies diminishes because the virus becomes resistant to these non, uh, to these neutralizing antibodies, then the non-neutralizing antibodies can strongly bind. And what people have shown is that these non-neutralizing antibodies have two effects, very important. The first one is that at the upper respiratory tract, they enhance the infectiousness of the virus. So that is the reason why the vaccinees are now more susceptible to infection because they are sitting on non-neutralizing antibodies because the vaccinal antibodies can no longer neutralize Omicron. So the non-neutralizing antibodies take over and they can enhance the infectiousness of the virus at the upper respiratory tract. 
Now, what people have shown in vitro in the lab is that this very same, this very same non-neutralizing antibodies can prevent severe disease at the lower respiratory tract. So at the upper respiratory tract, they enhance the infectiousness of the virus, but in the lung, they will prevent severe disease and systemic disease. That is what they do. And there is a molecular mechanism that explains this, and that is all summarized in, in the paper, the article that I wrote. But would you, when would you I'm mind talking, it, you, would you mind just explaining why that is for, for people and for yeah, me? I because... can do this. I, I, can do, I, I can do this, of course. So in fact, when the virus uh, at the upper respiratory tract, uh, the of course, it infects a number of cells. That's very clear, epithelial cells. But it is also, to some extent, captured by, uh, we call them dendritic cells. These are cells that are uh, laying awake in the mucosa of the upper respiratory tract. And the, the, the task of these cells is normally to remove all kinds of uh, you know, foreign antigens, etc. So what the virus does is that it adsorbs to the surface of these dendritic cells. To the surface, it's not internalized, it adsorbs to the surface. Typically, these dendritic cells can migrate and they will migrate to several different organs. For example, the lower respiratory tract, but it could also be the liver, for example, or the, um, the uh, digestive tract, for example. And there, there is a process that is called transinfection. And transinfection is the transfer of the virus that is absorbed to this migratory dendritic cell to a susceptible cell in the lung or in the distant organ. So transinfection means that this dendritic cell that has absorbed the virus at the surface is migrating to different organs, for example, the lung. And once it arrives there, the virus can be transferred from the surface of that dendritic cell to, for example, an alveolar cell, a lung cell, a susceptible lung cell, and infect that cell. And from there, the infection is disseminated. And that is what causes systemic disease and severe disease. Now, the very antibodies that are enhancing the infection at the upper respiratory tract are preventing this process of transinfection in the distant organs. So these the same antibodies are preventing this transinfection, which means that they prevent the susceptible cells in these organs from getting infected with the virus and from getting diseased. So that is why the very same antibodies prevent severe disease and why they suppress virulence. That is why you hear me talking about suppression. So if you like the first part of the pandemic, we were generating neutralizing antibodies, okay? These neutralizing antibodies were not capable of eliminating the virus or preventing transmission because of the mass vaccination. That is what I explained to you. So in other words, the lesson that we learned was that these neutralizing antibodies that we have been inducing have in fact been putting tremendous pressure, immune pressure, on the viral infectiousness. As a result, the virus has overcome this pressure and we had Omicron thriving, highly infectious. The situation we are now having with Omicron, okay, highly infectious, but now because the vaccinees, you know, they, their antibodies are no, no longer neutralizing. So the virus Omicron is resistant to the neutralizing antibodies. So now the non-neutralizing antibodies are taking over and those non-neutralizing antibodies at the level of the distant organs are putting immune pressure on the virulence of the virus. So the neutralizing antibodies were putting pressure on the infectiousness of the virus. The virus overcame it. Now, with Omicron and the vaccinees producing non-neutralizing antibodies, these non-neutralizing antibodies are preventing virulence of the virus but are not capable of preventing the infection. So they are putting pressure on the virulence of the virus. And for sure, the virus, because it is immune pressure by antibodies and it can still replicate, it will overcome 
this immune pressure of the non-neutralizing antibodies as well. And the molecular mechanism for that uh, has been explained in, in, in that paper, which is, which is of course, uh, pretty much uh, detailed and uh, shows how uh, this can be elegantly, in a very elegant way, done uh, not by the classical amino acid mutations that everybody's talking about, but uh, via sugars, sugars that will be inserted uh, additional sugar, sugars that will insert that nobody talks about the sugars, but people should know that 40%, for example, of the surface of the virus of coronavirus is covered by sugars, and that it is very well known textbook virology that sugars play a very important role in, for example, uh, subverting the immune system but also in increasing the infectiousness and in increasing the virulence. So sugars play a very, very important role. And uh, I'm explaining in that article how uh, additional, we call this, you know, uh, complicated word glycosylation, and that, that is the insertion of sugars on uh, the backbone, the peptide backbone of the, of the spike, that uh, these sugars can enable the virus to remain highly infectious while overcoming the pressure on virulence and 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 therefore this would lead to variants to the dominance of variants that are not only highly infectious but also highly virulent and that are fully resistant to the covid-19 vaccines and uh, which is um, yeah which is very very bad uh, news and uh, i'm a scientist i'm not a doom or a gloom preacher. I mean, I'm not interested even in, in appearing on social media or whatever. I mean, but this is a very important message that gets completely ignored by our health, uh, public health officials, by our key opinion leaders. But on the other hand, they themselves don't understand the pandemic anymore. Nobody dares to make predictions. They don't understand what, they, what is going on. They kind of like saying, we will see we ended the pandemic phase and we may go, we may drive the virus into endemicity. I'm telling you and everybody, this is textbook virology or textbook inf infectiology. You can only tame a pandemic. You can only control a pandemic if you generate herd immunity. And herd immunity is going to diminish the rate of transmission in your population. I explained this. What we are seeing is exactly the opposite. We are seeing high infection rates. We are seeing people, vaccinees, that are highly susceptible to infection. And we know that right now, because the, vir the, the virus is still, the virulence is still being suppressed, we know that many infections are either asymptomatic or mild and therefore underreported. Mm. But so ending the pandemic in a situation where you still have a high transmission rate, and a high infection rate, it is completely impossible. There is no even no discussion about this, right? You're freaking me out a little bit here, man. Mm. <laughs> because yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, like, I'd much rather hear the truth. Don't worry, I'm not like having regrets mm. or anything for asking mm. you on the show. <laughs> the but it's just that through through the, like through most of the pandemic, I heard people stating things. That they were just making the case that this is basic virology or basic epidemiology or basic biology even, and and then everyone ignored them, and then they turned out that it seems like they might have been right in a lot of cases. I mean, um, I heard I heard um, oh goodness, the name escapes me right now, but um, Brett Weinstein would have brought him up quite a lot on his Dark Horse podcast. There's um, some scientists that had been essentially predicting what we've discussed that's played out with with omicron and and a more um a more infectious mm. variant becoming the dominant strain as a result of the yeah the the rapid vaccination process and and the, you know people were saying this 18 months ago and and they very much got ignored um the there's one thing actually uh two things that i would like to, to ask very sort of quickly um and then i want to talk about the sort of how we would deal with this in if you were you know to to offer a solution potentially um so something that someone asked in the comments had um was about the the mixing of the vaccines they, they were just curious as to whether you had any any thoughts on yeah the the because i think for example in the uk now if you go for your booster it's almost all moderna 
um, uh, regardless of, you know, whether you'd had, say, AstraZeneca or Pfizer or, um, you know, whatever else they were offering up at the time as your first two shots um, of a vaccine and then they've been mixing and matching. Is is that a, a bad idea or is it sort of just like we don't even know? Well, and and the other thing I just only... want to tag on here just really briefly as well is the, the spike protein because um, something I heard discussed quite a lot was this idea that because the vaccine was imperfect and only targeting the spike protein, essentially not every single way that it could end that the virus can enter your cells and become yeah like in, infect you, that that was also meaning that we were yeah contributing to this phenomenon that you've you've been discussing. Mm. Well, let, let me first um, maybe answer the uh, the second question. Um, the spike protein is responsible for the infectiousness and the infectiousness means the entry of the virus in the susceptible cell. And I hear this oftentimes that people say, yes, uh, the virus has several different uh, proteins and uh, it's, it has been a bad idea to direct the vaccine only to the spike protein because uh, should we have had other components in the vaccine uh, of the virus in the vaccine, then we would have had a much broader immune response and it would have been more protective. Well, that is actually not true because people very often, even scientists are uh, confusing or conf uh, are confusing um, immune responses with protection. So, of course, the more components you have in your vaccine, the more or the broader your immune response will be. But I'm not interested in immune responses if they cannot, for example, neutralize the virus or if they cannot, like T cells, for example, kill virus infected cells. If these are just immune responses that recognize certain components of the virus, but they cannot prevent the virus from infecting the cell, or once the cell is infected, they cannot kill the virus-infected cell, like T cells, for example. I mean, there is no added value of these things. On the contrary, you are just going to divert the attention of the immune system to several different components so that the component that matters receives uh, you know, relatively less attention. So uh, the fact that, uh, you know, there is one thing in immunology, uh, Josh, that doesn't work, and that is the more the better. So people always think that is a, a human reaction. Mm. This thing doesn't work, we're going to throw more stuff into it, you know, more components, we are going, going to make the vaccine more complex, etc., etc. That doesn't work. So, um, so yeah, the S-protein is, uh, is uh, the target uh, for infection. And therefore, it is the right target if you use this vaccine in a prophylactic way. So that means, as I was saying, let's say, you know, you would you would go to a country where there is, for example, SARS-CoV-2, and there is, you know, it is endemic. It is not a pandemic. It is, you know, just in that region. You could, of course, immunize yourself with a vaccine that builds antibodies against the spike protein. By the time you go, you travel to that country, you have a very nice titer of high levels of antibodies that are precisely directed against that very variant in that country. You're gonna be perfectly protected, right? So it, it's not about the target. It is about doing this vaccination in the midst of a pandemic. And if you do this, you must make sure that your vaccine can basically block the transmission and block the infection. But we don't have this type of vaccines. As I was saying, when you do this prophylactic vaccination and you have the high titer of denutralizing antibodies before you go to that country, and the variant that is circulating in that country is exactly has exactly the same spike protein than the one that is in the vaccine, then your immune response, your antibodies will be able to block the transmission of that virus. They will prevent the infection. If you use this very same vaccine in another situation, for example, in a pandemic, 
or you use this when you are already infected. Let's say you got the infection, you're incubating the virus, you're incubating, and then you come with a vaccine, it's too late. It will not work. It will no longer have this infection, this, uh, this, this blocking effect on the infection. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's a matter of, it's, are you using these vaccines under the right conditions? It's not, is it the right vaccine? Of course, there is a, a lot to say about the mRNA vaccines and all these type of things, I, I fully agree. But in principle, with regard to the efficacy of the vaccine, the major mistake, the major fail, failure has been to use these vaccines during a pandemic. And that not only means that the vaccine is not efficacious, it means that you leave the door open to immune escape, which we discussed and which can have, as I was just explaining, detrimental consequences, not just for individual health, like side effects do, but also on a population level, of course, because it prevents herd immunity and it prevents, therefore, to stop and to tame the pandemic. But now, just I've forgotten about the first part of your question. It's all right. It was um, mainly about the, it was just about whether mixing vaccinations had-, had Oh, yeah, yeah, mixing vaccines. Idea. Okay, okay, yeah. Well. Let me be very short on this one. There has been, you know, um, it, it is just catastrophic the way these this mass vaccination campaigns are handled. I give you one example. We are vaccinating children, youngsters, pregnant women, uh, you know, uh, elderly people, etc. You have to realize that in the, uh, in the clinical studies that were very short and where we had not a long-term follow-up, we had only limited target populations. We had like young and healthy adults between 20 or 65 years old, and maybe a few elderly, but we definitely didn't have pregnant women. We didn't have uh, children. We didn't have uh, people who had already had the, uh, the, the coronavirus infection. Yeah? We did not have people with underlying diseases, etc. And now everybody gets vaccinated. This is unprecedented. This is insane. Same thing to your point. I can tell you, I, you know, I worked for a long time in the vaccine industry. Normally, when you change the dose of the vaccine, you could say, yeah, that's a, that, that's a small thing, etc." Very often, you are bound to restart your clinical studies. You could say for such a minor change, yes, it may, you know, the regulatory uh, authorities may require you, especially if you have not a correlative protection, to redo your full clinical trials. Here, we are talking about mixing up vaccines, you know, starting with J&J, then uh, coming with Pfizer and, and then still uh, doing a boost with Moderna or, or, or whatever. And it's all fine. Regulatory authorities, you know, it's all fine as long as you get this damn jab. Right. I mean, this clearly illustrates where we are going and what forces are driving this. This is unprecedented. This is irrational. This is just crazy, insane. I, I'm not a, a native English speaker. I don't find the appropriate words. Mm, but I it think is, you're, it you're is using just, some pretty appropriate words. Yeah, I think. <laughs> incredibly, incredibly inacceptable. It, it's completely unprecedented. Yeah. So, so no, the, the, the answer to your audience is no, this is completely, completely insane. This is, this would never, ever, never, ever uh, be uh, approved, authorized by uh, a regulatory authority if we didn't have this, uh, you know, this kind of very crazy push and coercion on people uh, to get the vaccine, uh, whatever, whatever it takes, whatever vaccine it is, whether it, and 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 whatever target population, whether it's about children, young children, six month old, uh, eighty five years old, uh, people with underlying diseases, people with diabetes, pregnant woman, you know, you just jab them, you know, and 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 that's that's uh, that's the goal, and that's the only purpose. It's uh, it's a scandal. It's 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 a disaster. It's it's yeah. Yeah, I mean. It, I'm not, uh, yeah, this is not my area of expertise, but it always seemed a little bit uh, reckless to me. 
Yeah. But yeah, that's exactly. just that's just one idiot's opinion. Um, now, uh, I, there's one other question actually it was coming from uh, Jonathan Weissman from AllTheRisks.com who actually appeared on this show uh, to talk about the, the vaccines a little bit. He wondered whether you what you would expect the NK and T cell responses to behave like in a new variant if you could make any kind of, uh, if there is something you could say on that. DNK, the natural killer cells, well, we believe, we think there is indirect evidence uh, uh, from uh, some uh, Italian uh, researchers, uh, researchers that, uh, and, and they published a number of very interesting studies. I was just surprised that as uh, the pandemic uh, uh, evolved and as um, there was more and more evidence that natural immunity, etc., uh could do a better job than the vaccines that all of a sudden all those groups who published these very interesting studies uh, on uh, innate antibodies on natural killer cells all part of our innate immune system that uh, you know there was apparently uh, all these studies uh, stopped there was no further publication on this but our understanding or my understanding is that uh, when you get uh, when you're not vaccinated and you get the infection and of course you can be protected completely protected and not have any symptoms at all that's what we call asymptomatic infection very often these people will develop antibodies just for a few weeks they will disappear these people will not have uh, symptoms but um, when for example the virus breaks through the innate immunity. So that means that uh, the innate immunity will take away a lot of the viral load. So you will already be relieved having, uh, you know, a good functional innate antibody uh, response. And when you then get a disease, mostly, therefore, it's going to be mild, maybe moderate. But uh, what is very likely and what has been shown and published for other innate um, effectors of the, of the immune system is that there is a process of training. So that means that the disease fighting experience leads to you know, training of your innate immune system so that next time around your innate immune system for example the innate antibodies and the nk cells you know are better have higher affinity for the uh, the, the pathogen and are therefore doing uh, a better job so uh, that is what is called training and it is due to i don't know to what extent your audience is familiar with this but we call this epigenetic changes so these are environmental changes that have an impact, let's say, on you know the, the genetic material of the cell, and that can lead to functional to functional reprogramming of your innate immune cells, so that next time around, next time when they are exposed, they will do a better job. So we know that NK cells are subject to epigenetic changes, for example. That is also how it has been shown a number of years ago that NK cells can even develop memory. So in other words, they can memorize the previous encounter. So yes, I mean, the innate immune system can be trained and uh, part of, you know, innate uh, antibodies, uh, NK cells are part of it and can in fact, can in fact do a better job the next time around thanks to this disease fighting experience that made that led to functional reprogramming of these cells and that increased their affinity for the pathogens so that they would better recognize and be able to fight the pathogen uh, next uh, upon next their next exposure okay well um dr van den bush i want to really really thank you for your time um you've taught me an incredible amount and i'm sure uh went upon reviewing this to do uh some clips and stuff for it i will yeah things will sink in even better um <laughs> because yeah there was a lot of information there but yeah you you really helped me like uh, get a get a far better understanding of um 
of where we're at yeah. basically with the with this whole situation. So well, I'm I'm always saying sorry to 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 briefly interrupt you. This will be my last <laughs> verse on your program on your show. But uh, for your audience, I think the most important is that people capture that these things are complex and complicated. This is a complex interplay between the virus and the immune system at the population level and all very much affected by human intervention like mass vaccination, etc. So for people, it's important to understand that this is relatively complex, that therefore they have a right to seek you know, information and therefore they have a right to I would say almost like oblige their politicians to issue not vaccine mandates, but debate mandates in order for the population to get more information about this. And that this is very different from just telling people, you know what, shut up, get your vaccine and get your child vaccinated and you'll be fine, right? Uh, if that is what people, you know, uh, learn from, from our interview, I would already be extremely satisfied because that is what is uh, right now. People are, think, are thinking, well, it's so simple. I get vaccinated and, uh, and I'm done and I'll be fine. And, uh, and, and if next autumn I need another shot, then uh, I go for it. Right. And that is a problem. Yeah. Okay. But yes, um, I, I wish I could stay and talk longer, but unfortunately I really have to run. Um, sure. I have put the, the link for your Twitter and for some of your work in the description for people. They can check it out if they want to know more. Um, and yeah, I just want to say thanks yeah. again. It's uh, we, have our, we have our website, of course. Yes, right. it's linked in there. Don't worry. Um, Voice, yeah. for si okay. Voice for Science Perfect. and Solidarity.org um, if people want to find exactly. it. Exactly. So yeah, okay. thanks very much.